You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For August 5th, 2020, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. What will it take to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees over pre-industrial levels, and how can we get there? Over the past several years, our listeners have heard about numerous plans, pathways, and scenarios that could hit that target, particularly in the 12 episodes of our mini-series on climate science. But all of those scenarios acknowledge that there are certain sectors that are particularly hard to decarbonize because they are part of the industrial output that makes modern civilization and construction possible, and because the emissions from those industrial processes are sometimes inherent to them. We touched on some of these hard-to-decarbonize sectors in our conversation with Robbie Orvis in episode 84, but in today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into them with Jules Kortenhorst, the CEO of Rocky Mountain Institute, or RMI. And right off the bat, I should mention that while RMI is my full-time employer, it is not associated with this podcast, which remains a separate project for me and my colleagues at the XE Network. Jules has been a vigorous advocate of energy transition for many years and an evangelist for it at innumerable conferences and opportunities to influence the world's elites. More recently, as we'll hear in today's conversation, he has been leading a new effort at RMI to reorient the company around addressing the climate challenge head-on, so it's a privilege and a pleasure to have him join us on the show. We'll be talking about the various ways we can reduce carbon emissions from hard-to-decarbonize sectors like aviation, shipping, trucking, cement manufacturing, steelmaking, and more. I have no doubt that much of the information we'll be sharing will be new to many of our listeners, and I think it's really exciting stuff. And before we move on, I just want to offer a quick administrative announcement. By popular demand, and I mean popular, we have finally started including the text of our news segments in the show notes. We actually started doing that in episode 123, and we'll continue doing so in the future. And as time and budget allows, we'll try to catch up our back catalog of shows as well. So if you're a subscriber who has been wanting the written text of our news segments, just log into our website, which is the only way to access our extensive show notes, and check out the show pages for each episode. And if you're not a subscriber yet, well, consider this one more reason to join us. I should also mention that since so many of us are still quarantined at home, including yours truly, we have extended our COVID response discount through September 1st. So whether you're an individual, a student or educator, or a university or other institution, just go to our website at energytransitionshow.com and click on the COVID-19 response button to claim your discount before September 1st. This episode also features an extra-long news segment because there's been so much happening. We'll look at the data on a few startling new heat records that have been set this year. We'll applaud the abandonment of a major gas pipeline project in the U.S. We'll note a major milestone in the U.S. for coal and renewables. And we'll have an extra-long episode of everybody's favorite segment, Coal Death Watch. And now, let's go to our interview with Jules Kortenhorst, recorded July 9th, 2020. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Jules, to the Energy Transition Show. 
Thank you, Chris. Nice to be here. In one way or another, RMI has been actively pursuing energy transition since Amory Lovins co-founded it 38 years ago, which was long before quote-unquote energy transition was the buzzword that it is today, and long before climate change was even recognized as an existential challenge as it is today, and certainly long before it was a policy strategy that had gained the world's attention and effort. But now RMI is refocusing on various initiatives which are aimed at different sectors in order to increase its impact in addressing the climate challenge overall. So why is RMI undertaking this transformation internally at this time? Well, Chris, the reality is we are facing a planetary emergency. The climate crisis is now the most pressing issue that faces humanity. And I say that conscious of the fact that this podcast will air during a pandemic that is, of course, attracting everybody's immediate attention. But in the long run, if we don't mitigate climate change aggressively over the next 10, 20, 30 years, the challenges, the difficulties that humanity will face are even more significant than what we're dealing with right now. So over the course of the last six months, we at RMI have decided to focus our work even more closely on how we can make the biggest impact possible on reducing emissions, both in the short term and by the middle of the century. And from our perspective, this requires a realignment of our programs, as well as radical collaboration with partners around the world a realignment of our programs to drive not just all the co-benefits of a clean energy transition, but very specifically also the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and then to net zero by 2050 that we need in order to stay on a path that is compliant with the Paris Agreement below one and a half degrees. We've always believed that the energy transition brings multiple benefits, but now we need to even more urgently focus on those greenhouse gas emissions. So that's why we decided to realign our programs to get the biggest reduction for the effort that we spent. And how is that 50% reduction by 2030 target selected? If you look at the science Over the last couple of years, there have been a couple of new insights. The first new insight that the International Panel on Climate Change published about a year and a half ago is about the very significant difference between two degrees of warming and one and a half degree of warming. And the IPCC laid out very convincing arguments that humanity really needs to drive for limiting global warming to under one and a half degree rather than two degree. And if you want to hit one and a half degrees, then the available carbon budget, the amount of greenhouse gases that we can still emit is actually really limited. It not only means that we have to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions pretty much by the middle of the century, that's famous net zero by the middle of the century goal, But because it is, in the end, the full amount of emissions below the curve towards that net zero by the middle of the century, we also need to push down emissions very rapidly over the next 10 years. It's why people start increasingly to talk about the decisive decade of the next 10 years. And the IPCC has laid out that 50% reduction by 2030 combined with a target of net zero by the middle of the century is really what we should set as our goals. And that means a massive deployment of 
sustainable energy technology, a very, very, very significant acceleration of the turnover of assets in our energy system, whether it is from internal combustion engine cars to electric vehicles, or from old steel mills to electric arc furnaces, of obviously from coal-fired or gas-fired power plants to renewable energy. It is a huge challenge, but we believe it's not impossible. Yeah, we've done some previous episodes on sort of what the carbon budget is to hit that 1.5 degree or the 2.0 degree mark. And we've talked with various experts in depth about that, including experts who are part of the IPCC modeling teams. So our longtime listeners are certainly familiar with the general view there of what the carbon budgets need to be, as well as some of the challenges in reducing emissions to meet those targets. But I think we still need a lot more clarity on the pathways to get from where we are now to meeting those targets. So what are some of the key pathways that RMI has identified that will help us achieve those decarbonization targets? Yeah, we've formulated our pathways in terms of eight big bets, big bets that we all together have to deliver on in order to be on that one and a half degree pathway. The first one is around decarbonizing our power system. The whole energy transition revolves around having a low carbon electricity system, an electricity system that delivers clean electricity, not only for the existing use of electricity, but also to electrify other parts of our energy system. The second big bet is around our built environment. Buildings, in one way or another, represent a very large part of our carbon footprint. So we need to make our buildings more energy efficient. We also need to stop the use of natural gas in heating our buildings. We need to make our built environment net zero as well. The third big bet is around mobility. And for mobility, it is increasingly clear that the answer is also electrification. So switching from the internal combustion engine to electric mobility over the next 10, 15 years is our next big bet. And particularly these two big bets of the built environment and the electric mobility need to happen in cities. So a fourth big bet is helping cities deploy the technologies, put in place the regulations, create the settings in which cities can actually make that transition to become clean, to have net zero buildings and electric mobility. All of the energy transition also still requires a number of new technologies. So our fifth big bet is on the accelerated deployment of new technologies, whether it is hydrogen or sustainable aviation fuels or energy efficiency technologies, or the digital technologies that allow for very high penetration of renewables in our power system, all of those technologies need to be scaled up much more rapidly, and that's the fifth big bet. The sixth big bet is on supporting developing countries in making the right decisions with regards to their deployment of the energy infrastructure of the future. In many developing countries, the first priority is understandably still making sure that their citizens have access to energy because energy is a critical ingredient in creating economic growth and creating welfare for citizens. So making sure that developing countries leapfrog to the energy technologies of the future is a critical big bet that we will support. And then as a seventh big bet, we believe that 
as with everything, you manage what you measure. So we have to start measuring much more rigorously our global emissions. We need to make our emissions more visible and as a result, more actionable. So we expect to use information technology, satellite technology, big data, artificial intelligence to make timely and location-based emissions data available to everyone for immediate action. And the last big bet is that of sector decarbonization. One of the most challenging parts of the economy to decarbonize is heavy industry and transport. Some call it the hard to abate sectors. And our last big bet is to work with the sectors to understand how they can reduce their demand for energy, how they can electrify, and what they can do to shift their processes that maybe bring about inherent greenhouse gas emissions like steel and cement and help them with abating those emissions as well. So these hard to decarbonize sectors or hard to abate sectors are particularly challenging, and I certainly understand why that rises to the level of being one of the big bets here. But why would RMI choose to tackle those difficult sectors instead of doing something easier? For example, just amplifying solutions that exist today, like increasing the deployment of wind and solar, for example. Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. Why do you take that difficult monkey on your shoulder, right? (laughs) Right. But the reality is that if we want to hit that net zero target by the middle of the century, we can't leave heavy industry and heavy transport to the side. Heavy industry and transport together account for about 30% of emissions globally, about 10 gigatons of CO2 a year. So we can make enormous progress, and we are making progress in the power sector, in the built environment, in light-duty transport, and putting them on a path to decarbonization. But that alone is not good enough. If we don't also address the emissions of the harder-to-abate sectors, then we won't get to those goals. And that requires new technology. It requires a new level of ambition. It requires radical collaboration across these sectors. And above all, it also requires a new awareness in these sectors that they cannot stand by, that they have to be part of the solution. And now that we are starting to realize that the technical low-carbon solutions for these hard-to-abate sectors do in fact exist, they may not yet be at scale, they may not yet always be fully commercial, but they do exist, now is the right time to step it up and work both on the demand and on the supply side of these sectors to uh, help abate their emissions. So how is RMI tackling this challenge? For each of these sectors, we will need to work closely with partners from around the world. Rocky Mountain Institute on its own cannot take on the challenges of all these hard to abate sectors. So over the course of the last two years, we have teamed up with the Energy Transitions Commission the World Economic Forum, and an organization called Systemic, a sustainable consulting firm in London, to lay out the pathways for decarbonization in these hard-to-abate sectors. We've created a so-called Mission Possible platform, which intends to help each of these sectors to develop and then implement the comprehensive pathways to decarbonize these sectors. So for aviation, and for shipping, for trucking, for cement, for steel. Uh, 
And the intention is that this Mission Possible platform will become a central part of the discussions around decarbonizing sectors at the next climate conference, the COP26 in Glasgow, which, as you know, is now taking place at the end of 2021, to ensure that we get robust participation of these industries in driving down their emissions. And this is an open source approach. It is the idea that we will engage with other civil society organizations like the World Council on Sustainable Business, uh, Cirrus, uh, and others. And it is also intended to engage with the industries themselves, with the companies in each of these sectors, to lay out logical and robust pathways, but then also drive the policy environment, the procurement and the support from financial investors to help these industries make this transition. So correct me if I'm wrong, but collaborating with multiple partners on a goal like this seems actually like a sort of a relatively novel approach to addressing climate challenges. I think other than big, broad goals like the Paris Agreement, it seems like many NGOs like RMI typically work on their own projects. So why has RMI created this Mission Possible platform for collaboration with partners? You're absolutely right, Chris. Collaboration is not easy. And people often think, oh, but civil society organizations, mission-driven organizations, they should be quite eager to work together. But there's all sorts of historical and institutional reasons why collaboration is not automatic and not easy. Hmm. But when it came to dealing with these hard-to-abate sectors, I think the Energy Transition Commission and the World Economic Forum and Systemic and RMI, we all realized that none of us could do this on our own. This is big, this is complex, and it is going to require collaboration. It's requiring public press and private partnership. It's going to require teaming up with industries. And all of us together decided, yes, this is something we can better take on with a coalition of organizations than individually. And think about it from each of these industries' perspective. You have the whole value chain that you have to bring together. Technology suppliers, customers, financial investors and lenders, the energy suppliers, the industrial companies themselves, and then in the end also policymakers, governments. So we need to do this across organizations. One of the best examples of how this can work comes from the work uh, the shipping industry has been doing. Rocky Mountain Institute was part of helping launch the Global Maritime Forum, which has become the sort of platform where the shipping industry gets together and discusses how it's going to hit the goal of the International Maritime Organization of taking emissions out of shipping. And the Global Maritime Forum started as a relatively small organization with a limited number of the shipping companies participating, but it has grown very rapidly. It has expanded globally. The original leadership of Scandinavian shipping companies like Maersk was very much recognized, but others then joined in. And now it is a important platform where the industry can work together. And we as Rocky Mountain Institute then recognized the opportunity and said, look, we can bring the financial 
community to bear here as well. So together with the largest banks in the shipping industry, those banks that provide ship finance, we created the Poseidon principles, which basically lays out how financial institutions are going to shift their shipping finance portfolio to become compliant with a one and a half degree pathway. And so this is all becoming a mutually reinforcing system heading in the right direction. Hmm. So we think we need to do more of that, and that's why Mission Possible Platform is such an important platform to help the hard-to-abate sectors in the run-up to COP26 next year in Glasgow. The Marrakesh Accord is an interesting part of the UNFCCC system. After the Paris Agreement was negotiated five years ago, the next COP took place in Marrakesh, and the parties at the COP said, we need to find a way to engage with non-state actors, with businesses, with financing parties, with civil society organizations, with research institutions. So the Marrakesh Accord was specifically created as the framework for non-state actors to engage with the UNFCCC negotiations. So far, the progress of that Marrakesh Accord has been limited, and we see this Mission Possible platform as an important and powerful way to robustly engage industry sectors with the COP and with the UNFCCC framework. So the Marrakesh Accord gives you a precedent for bringing in non-state actors. The Poseidon Principles brings in sort of a, a guideline or a platform to bring in the financial community. And then sort of the Mission Possible platform creates just kind of a big umbrella around everything so that when we get to COP26 in Glasgow next year, hopefully we're going to have this strategy working where you have robust engagement from all these different actors, including ones that are not normally at the table here representing governments or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And businesses have always looked for that way to engage. I remember my first COPS 15 years ago, where some companies came to Copenhagen and said, we want to be of help, we want to participate, but how do we actually work in this very complex diplomatic and political system? And at the same time, diplomats and policymakers can massively benefit from the voice of the private sector. That's also why we were supportive of creating the Energy Transitions Commission, which is very much a partner in the Mission Possible platform. The Energy Transitions Commission, which was launched about three years ago, to bring the voices of some 30 CEOs of large companies and some NGOs from around the world together to lay out a vision for the energy transition in line with the Paris Agreement but a vision from the perspective of industry. How does industry see hitting that goal of one and a half degree while maintaining economic development and economic success? So getting companies to engage with the UNFCCC and with the climate negotiations requires this sort of pathway and these organizations that basically provide the docking arrangement with the UNFCCC system. Gotcha. Okay, so 
that's all really helpful context to understand sort of how all these different actors are working together or going to work together. But let's dive into sort of the technical side of the energy transition solutions themselves for these hard-to-abate sectors, because I think that's that's where the rubber meets the road here. So what are the potential solution sets for these various hard-to-abate sectors? Well, let's start, Chris, the way we always start at Rocky Mountain Institute by saying there's two levers that we have to work with, the supply side, but very much also the demand side. People often first jump at the supply side, renewable energy, but it's important also in the hard-to-abate sectors that there are very important and significant demand side levers to reduce energy demand, make these sectors more productive in their use of energy, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions that way. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a look at some recent news items. And since our last episode was part of our Energy Basics mini-series where the shows don't have news segments, we've got more than the usual amount of news to talk about today. Item 1. According to data from NOAA and NASA, 2020 has been the planet's second hottest year on record so far, second only to 2016, and is likely to finish among the top three hottest years globally. For the U.S., 2020 is on track to be its eighth hottest year on record. Records have once again been shattered all over the Earth, including in the Arctic and Antarctic. In June, a town in Siberia, while inside the Arctic Circle, broke all temperature records with a recording of 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Antarctica broke several temperature records in February as well. 
The record-breaking temperatures in the Arctic Circle have had numerous consequences, including thawing permafrost causing ground-mounted infrastructure to fail, wildfires raging through Siberian forests, and an explosion of silk moths that have been stripping trees of their needles. A new study by the World Weather Attribution Project found that the record heat this year in Siberia would have been virtually impossible without human-induced global warming. Item 2. After six years of vigorous opposition by environmental and community groups, Virginia-based Dominion Energy and North Carolina-based Duke Energy have given up on building the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. The 600-mile natural gas pipeline would have tunneled under the Appalachian Trail on its way from West Virginia through Virginia and into Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.